Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen learn and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or blog talk radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. And then following the show, you can continue this discussion on Afrogenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact, please like both pages. Well, tonight's show will focus on a historical memoir written by Marietta Stevens Critchlow and authored by her daughter, Linda Critchlow White. Now, you have heard several shows where it has been emphasized that there is a need to to document and leave a legacy for your loved ones and for your community. Well, tonight's show, Back There Then, was written by Marietta Stevens Crutchlow in the 1990s and discovered by her daughter, Linda Crutchlow White, in 1999. Now, Linda will share her story. She will offer us words of wisdom, uh, especially to others who are considering writing a historical memoir. Linda received her BS from the University of uh, Cincinnati and uh, West Virginia State College and MS in Human Ecology from Howard University. She taught home economics in both Brooklyn and D.C. public schools before attending Catholic University, earning a master's in library science. She also worked as a school library media specialist. So let me give a warm welcome to author Linda Krishlow White to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Linda. 
Thank you so much, Bernice. I'm honored to be on your program. I want to clarify one thing, just in case my friends from University of Cincinnati or anybody else are listening. I do not have a degree from University of Cincinnati. (laughs) My only bachelor's degree is from West Virginia State College, but I did attend University of Cincinnati for two years. Okay, well, thank you for the clarification. (laughs) You're welcome. Well, well, Linda, you know, I have have read your book. I have met your lovely mother. And I want you to, to take us to the very beginning. Please share when you discovered your mother's memoir and what motivated you to publish her book. All right. It was actually in 2009 when my mother was turning 90, and we were looking through her voluminous cache of family memorabilia, letters, uh, photographs, and such. We were looking for images to use in a PowerPoint presentation for her 90th birthday. And in one of the boxes, we came across this manuscript, wonderfully typed, in a loose leaf binder, she had put each page in a plastic sleeve, and she had Xeroxed copies of a number of photographs. You know, such as you know some of her ancestors, maybe a Xerox picture from her 1942 wedding, and so on. But when I saw it, I said, "Oh my gosh, this is wonderful! It's too good to be in somebody's basement or attic." So at that time, I said, "I am going to." I don't know if I said I was going to publish it, but I was determined to retype it and put it in some kind of publishable format. So I proceeded to scan the pages so that it could be retyped. I worked with a couple of different um, professional organizers, one of whom actually has a company called picture-perfect organizing. (laughs) So she was able to look through the boxes and see duplicate photos and photos that didn't make sense to keep, period, or just to whittle down the large numbers of photos. But I worked with organizers to organize all the materials. That's an important step. And in fact, if I can divert for a minute, earlier this evening, I spoke to a group of young people about the book. This was at the Urban League. There's a wonderful group of uh, young urban professionals, I'll call them, ages 21 to 40, who meet regularly, and they invited me to come and talk. But anyway, one of the women said that her grandmother had so much stuff, and they really needed somebody to come and help organize it. And a lot of times we think we can do everything ourselves. No, sometimes we need help. And these professional organizers are wonderful at honing in on what should be saved, what should be discarded, making nice labels for boxes and notebooks and baskets and what have you. So that's what I did. I got everything organized so that I could put things into a book. Well, you know what? I probably need to talk to your organizer. But let's, let's you know, just continue to talk. You know, one of the things that I feel is that you are so fortunate to have your mother uh, in your life right now to share the many things that she has witnessed in her 90-plus years of life. And just take us through this kind of memory lane. As you discovered this manuscript, 
did you two sit down and talk about what was in the manuscript or you just spent time reading the manuscript? Well, I mostly read it. And as you and perhaps some of your listeners who've seen the book and or seen images of it on the website, you see it's titled Back There Then. Well, it's titled Back There Then because over the years, Mom did tell a lot of stories. And she would always start out, back there then we used to, (laughs) uh, we didn't have electricity. Or back there then we walked everywhere. Back One of the things she often says, back there then we didn't have electric dishwashers and microwaves and washing machines. And and yet we had so much more time, more, more leisure time. Nobody has leisure time anymore. But she would tell different little stories about the family and um about her friend Hattie Beasley who introduced her and my father and um how Hattie's I called her Mommy Hattie, Mommy Hattie's husband Reverend Beasley performed their marriage um ceremony in nineteen forty two and later performed the wedding ceremony for my husband and me. But after I found the manuscript, quite honestly I didn't talk to my mother about it a lot because if I I, I always believed that if she thought I was going to turn it into a book, she would have said, no, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. And it, as you probably heard her say something similar, she still doesn't quite understand why other people are interested in knowing about, as she puts it, about her life. But in a way, even though a large part of the book is about her life, It's not always that people really want to know about her life, but they want to know about other people's lives. There is such a large body of people out here in this world who like reading about other people's families and stories. You know that. Many of your listeners know that. And I, as you know, many other people have also documented their family stories. In fact, um, when I talk to groups, I have on display a few other published family stories, and I tell everybody that there's a list of some of these stories at the Library of Congress website, as well as at the Newberry Library in Chicago. And anybody who wants to write their family story should read some of these others to see what they like, what they don't like, which perspective they might like to take for their own family if they're going to write their family story. Each one is a little bit different. And it's not that one is right or wrong or good or bad. Each one is a little bit different. And um, the other thing that's interesting about you asked if I had had a conversation with my mother. From time to time, during the time that I was kind of writing the book, I think Mommy kind of suspected because sometimes I would ask her certain little questions. But similarly, she would be telling one of her little back there then stories and she would talk be talking about maybe, let's say, her cousin Bertha. And she'd say, oh, yeah, um, what was Bertha's husband's name? I can't remember. And I would tell her his name. But the only reason was because I had been having the document in front of me almost every day since 2009 or so. So I remembered the names and I remembered some of the dates. But periodically I would have to ask my mother about some of them as well. And so your mother then could fill in, uh, I guess, some of the, the gaps or could, could add to to the stories that 
you were maybe uncovering in the documents. Exactly. Like I might have well, had to clear up some dates. You know, when did sure. somebody graduate from school? When did somebody move to a certain place? Or um, which? who was, what was the name of her great-grandfather? Even though a lot of it had been written, um, either some things got, um, how shall I say, got lost in the transcription of some mm-hmm. of the documents, or... It's certainly possible that some things were, and I'm going to say incorrect in the first place. And so maybe when I saw it, I realized, let me just double check on this, you know, to be sure. Of course, in some cases, I was able to go to a city directory to check to see where someone lived. Like, for instance, my mother mentioned someone who was actually not a family member, but um, she mentioned Loretta McKenzie, who was former superintendent of schools and who was one of my teachers at Roosevelt High School in Washington. And she said um, Dr. McKenzie had lived on the same block as one of my mother's aunts. And I wasn't sure of that. (laughs) But sure enough, I went to the Library of Congress, looked up a city directory of Washington from the 1960s, and saw that they did indeed live on the same block. So... You know, it was questions like that, that if I didn't think my mother was correct, I could look it up someplace else. Or I think my mother had written something about my time in elementary school and mentioned something about the boundaries having changed. So maybe I could correct that a little bit. Um, Things like that. Right. Well, and and what I could see you doing as the, the genealogist, is kind of verifying some of her oral history or her memory and right. just making certain that the information that was put in the book was the correct information. Right. Well, take us uh, through your process. Uh, you you mentioned hiring organizer, but mm-hmm. take us through your process of exactly what did you discover, what did you add, and was it only from your mother's uh, documents that you were able to pull this back then there together, or back there then together? Well, that's a good question, uh, Bernice. One of the other experiences I had, uh, kind of around the same time, but a little before then, in 2006, I became a power of attorney for one of my mother's cousins who never married, never had any children. Her name was Constance Glover Bruce, B-R-U-C-E. She lived in a house on Manor Place in Washington in the Parkview neighborhood that her mother had purchased in 1945. She was a divorced single woman but managed to purchase that house. And then here, Cousin Connie was still living in the house in 2006, but got so that she was not able to stay there any longer. The house was not in good condition. I have to be honest, there were you know, holes in the walls, in the ceilings. It almost was hazardous. But there actually had been a social worker involved with Cousin Connie's life, and I guess it was determined that the house was not so dangerous that she couldn't stay there. But after Mm -hmm. she got a little bit ill, she um, moved into a nursing home, or actually into a group home initially. But the point is, in this house, amidst the clutter were so many, and I'll call them treasures, for lack of a better word. There was a collection of over 250 professional quality black and white photos of African Americans 
that we later learned were from about 1908. And we also learned that they were taken in Boston. They were found in a house in Washington, but were found where we learned they had been taken in Boston. Now, Connie, or Constance, had actually been born in Boston. Her mother, Goldie Glover Bruce, had been born in Lynchburg, Virginia, where most of my mother's ancestors were from. But Goldie and her parents and siblings moved to Boston in 1901. Now, how did I know they moved there in 1901? I actually didn't know that prior to 2006 when we cleaned out this house. But among the other things in this house, in addition to the photographs, was a, I can't quite call it a manuscript because it was only one page, but Aunt Goldie had typed a brief history of her life. And there was a note attached to it that said that she had been requested to write it, type it, by a man who apparently was in charge of Slow Hall, that's S-L-O-W-E, named after Lucy Diggs Slow, a one-time dean, actually she was the first dean of women at Howard University, tennis player, quite distinguished in her own right, but the point is, Aunt Goldie worked at Slow Hall, and I guess they were having some kind of special program. This wasn't detailed there, but, and I can't remember the man's name. I have to look that up. Um, He asked her to write a brief history of her work life. Perhaps others had been asked the same thing. But in this history, she says, story of my work life, and it's dated December 30th, 1943. And she says, having been born of business parents, James and Lucy Glover, in Lynchburg, Virginia, June 17th, 1888, an eighth in a family of ten children, I was very young when I began helping in the neighborhood grocery store owned by my parents and managed by an older sister. But she goes on to say that in her twelfth year, April 1901, my family moved to Boston, Massachusetts, where again I was clerk in their grocery store. But she goes on and on and on. This was information that we needed. (laughs) So now I tell folks, if you are cleaning out a house, and many of us will have to do that at some time in our life, although this is something I was not prepared for, didn't go to school for. <laughs> no, I never had to do it. I don't know if my mother ever had to do it, but be careful what you throw away because amidst the clutter, there could be clues to your ancestry. In the same house, That's there wonderful were... advice. Mm-hmm. That is wonderful advice. You know, it is amazing the stuff that you can find as you said, in the midst of clutter. And so not only did you find 150 black and white old pictures, you found letters. I mean, this this is Mm -hmm. wonderful. And that was in in cleaning out a house you discovered. Exactly. Exactly. But in talking to different people, many people have these same kinds of memorabilia. Although sometimes when I'm talking to people, they say, oh, yeah, I remember we had some of those things, and we just threw them away. And I've even talked to people who said, let's say there's a a niece or a cousin. They said, yeah, I wanted the things from such and such an Aunt Susie, but um, Janice threw them away. You know, I'm just saying, you know, whoever, somebody else in the family threw them away or didn't let me have them. Because sometimes people in a family recognize historically valuable things and others don't. And so we need to be careful 
because if we have some idea of what to look out for, even if we don't want to compile those things into a book or scrapbook, they need to be put in a repository where others can see and share them. A museum, a library, and recently, and I'm sorry I don't have this right in front of me, I came across a book, I believe the title was Organizing Your Family History, and the author says, um, 50 or 100 years from now, it's very unlikely that your descendants will want to want to or be able to sit in front of a computer and look at your pictures or your letters and so on. You need to compile your story into a book. And to use a book, you don't even need electricity. <laughs> you can read in by candlelight or by sunlight. And you can donate a book to the Church of the Latter-day Saints Family History Center to the museum, whether it's the Smithsonian or a local historical society or even a public library. I mean, there are copies of our book in the D.C. Public Library. There's one in the Lynchburg Public Library, and we're in the process of making sure that copies of the book are in other local libraries, especially those where our ancestors lived. And you're so right. Rather than throw... Uh, important letters or just letters for that matter away, uh, at least compile them and donate them to someone else rather than to throw them in the trash. Now, I have a right. question coming out of the uh, chat room, and they would like to know what kind of information did you find in uh, various letters and documents, and not only in your aunt's house, but also in your mother's book? All right, well, in my mother's sister's collection of things, because um, we had to clean out her place where she had lived for 50 years before moving into an assisted living facility, and she's now 97. By the way, before I answer that question, see, in my mother and her sister's situation, my mother's 95, her sister's 97. They have lived a century, essentially. And I think the people in that generation have seen so many changes and observed so many things in society, it's really important that we tell their stories especially. And we baby boomers are the last link to that generation, so we have to kind of pull those stories out of them. Now, back to what I found. I learned for the first time, well, I was telling you about my Aunt Edna's things. In her house, there was a letter that... My mother and auntie, okay, my aunt and mother had an aunt named Mildred. She lived in Lynchburg. And by the way, let me just give you a little bit more background information. My mother was born in Washington, D.C. to parents John and Florence Stevens. John and Florence were from Lynchburg, Virginia. Both of their parents were from counties in and around Lynchburg, including Nelson County, Amherst County, and Appomattox County. Okay, going back to my aunt who had in her possession a letter from 1939 that had been written by her aunt Mildred who was still living in Lynchburg, sent it to my aunt who was living in Duquesne, Pennsylvania at the time, and 
then my mother had lived in Washington. I forgot one other important story. Um, after my mother was born in 1919, she and my aunt and their parents lived in Washington, D.C. in Lee Joy Park in a house down the street from Howard University. But my mother's mother died when my mother was only six years old. So their father, my grandfather, who I never knew because he died before I was born, but their mother died in 1926, and their father couldn't really take care of them or didn't want to, and he sent them to live with his sister who lived in Duquesne, Pennsylvania. So my aunt stayed up there for a while, even though my mother came back to Washington to attend Howard University. But there's, I came across a letter that Aunt Mildred had sent to my aunt that accompanied my Aunt Edna's share of the rental income from the house, the, I guess you'd call it the home house, the family house, that my mother and auntie's grandparents had owned in Lynchburg. Now, what's so special about that? You know, today we hear about families who become divided after you know the death of um, a parent or grandparent. But in this case, my mother and aunt were entitled to a percentage of the rental income because their mother had died. Their mother had four other sisters and brothers. But Aunt Mildred made sure to send them their share of the rent, which, as she put in the letter, after paying fire insurance and a little bit of money for some repairs and taxes, it ended up being a dollar and eighty-four cents for each of the sisters, and that was for a couple of months, not just one month. But it doesn't sound like a lot, but I think it's significant that, one, she sent it because a lot of times people who are near where the resource family resources are, they keep it all for themselves <laughs> and don't share with the rightful heirs. That's part of it. But also we need to understand that the money, I guess the original monthly rent, must have been only 15 or $20. <laughs> and Aunt Mildred sent them a small, you know, their share, which might have been, say, something about $1.84 for a period of time. And, but you were able to buy a pair of shoes for a dollar. You know, we go out today and don't think twice about, well, not we, some people, about buying a pair of shoes for $150, $200, $300. But, our grandparents paid a dollar for a pair of shoes. And the other thing about this book is, and I know um, people have been very interested in the photographs and how well-dressed many of the people are, these people were not, as they say, they didn't have a lot of money, but they looked prosperous. They definitely didn't have a lot of money, but they're fairly well-dressed, but they didn't, what, didn't know about designer clothes. At least this group of people didn't know about designer clothes. They made most of their own clothes, but they were very fashionable. So I think the other lesson there is if somebody gives you a dollar or even $5 today, you don't look down at it, you know, uh, or you don't make fun. Oh, it's just a dollar. It's just $2. No, you appreciate whatever people give to you. You have to be grateful and you realize that those pennies can turn into dollars. But that's right. So something. let's go back to uh so you actually found a letter that uh gave you the price 
of how much, or at least that said, how much money she was sending as their share of, of the rent. And what when was this letter written? Uh, August 28th, 1939. 1939. So how? what is the oldest document you found in uh, both your mother's uh, memoir, as well as in other artifacts that you found with your aunt's house. Okay, that's a good question, too. Probably the photographs that were taken in Boston, they would have been taken about 1908. Oh, and then there's actually a photograph. In fact, one of the ones that's on the cover of the book, that is a picture of my mother's mother when she was a little girl. It's a picture oh, of wow. my grandmother and her sister and their parents, uh, Betty Glover Garland and her husband, Reverend Sandy Garland. So that picture would have been taken about 1890. 1890. And, yes. you know, I just have to ask you this question and, and have you share an experience you had at a book fair where <laughs> uh, someone took a look at the cover of your book and please tell the the listeners what was the reaction to the photos on the book all right well we were at a what they call the pop-up bookstore down in upper marlboro and a young african-american woman probably around between 30 and 35 she kept walking back and forth over to the table and she was looking at the book and then finally she said are these pictures real and I think it's because even if she had seen pictures from the 1800s, she had not seen photographs of African Americans other than maybe sharecroppers. Or And there's nothing wrong with sharecroppers, okay? Absolutely nothing. That's an important part of our history, too. You know, we see a lot of pictures now of slavery, but this was a group of people who were and I've been warned by historians that we have to be careful how we characterize them um, because a l number of my ancestors on both my mother's and father's side of the family didn't finish high school, but I'm 99% sure that they were all literate, at least from the end of the 19th century. But they look prosperous. They're not on a farm, and let me, as an aside, you already said I was a school librarian and a teacher. I taught home economics, which is all about vocational education. And I would tell my students that farming is the most important industry in the world because we depend on them. So I'm not putting down the whole concept of farming or sharecropping or any of that. But anyway, this young woman was so amazed at these images. They're clear, and they show people well-dressed at various stages and all these pictures, including the, well, there's the one from about 1890 and others. She just had never seen pictures of African-Americans like that. Now, many of your listeners have seen a lot of pictures like this. You know, many of them know about these kinds of pictures. And that's another thing. I think it's important that those of us who do have some of these resources, we do have to share them with others so that we can dispel some of the myths surrounding the history of African Americans. And that's what I try to do when I talk to people about um, the book, even with that letter about the house. 
the fact that my grandparents, no, great-grandparents, had this property in Lynchburg from before 1900, and they kept it in the family as long as they could, I think until some kind of maybe urban redevelopment, and that's a whole other story, came in. Or, okay, or, Linda, uh, we're going mm-hmm. to take a Linda, we're going to take yes. a quick break and come back, and then I want you to get directly into the book. We're not going to tell any side stories, but we're going to talk okay. about what, <laughs> what's going on in the book because the listeners are very anxious. They want to know more about the, the various artifacts. We want to go back to some of the original information that your mother uh, gathered about her life and the stories that she told. So we're All going right. to take a quick break. Mm-hmm. like to welcome everyone back to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded through Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. You can also find the archive shows on my website, Jeannie B. Ruth. Now, you have been listening to Linda Krishla White. She has been discussing a historical memoir written by her mother, Marietta uh, Krishla Stevens. Uh, Linda, I want you to now take us back. First of all, did you encounter any surprises in the book? I mean, it's really important that we understand what's in this book. And I know that you have some some wonderful historical documents and some wonderful stories in the book about your grandfather, what he did. So help us understand what happened back there then. I mean, this is what the book is all about. Tell us about back there then. Exactly. Well, my mother documents how her father worked at the Library of Congress in Washington. He was not a librarian, but he operated a photostat machine, which was one of the precursors of the Xerox machine that we know today. She talks about how he also worked on Sunday afternoons. Mind you, everybody, the Library of Congress was open on Sundays back then. And he counted the people who came in on Sundays. They kept track of that. And she talks about an illness that he had. And, you know, there are many people now who stress the importance of knowing your family genealogy for health reasons. I mean, um, she talks about how her father had a stroke and how the doctor prescribed or suggested that he drink a raw egg and a glass of water every day. 
Now, knowing what we know now, she says that probably contributed to his early death because the eggs back then had a lot of cholesterol. I guess that doctor thought that the eggs would strengthen him, but they also probably added to the cholesterol. Um, Following up to Aunt Goldie, uh, I learned from her records, I learned for the first time after I cleaned out that house on Manor Place, that her mother is said to be the daughter of Wilmer McLean. Wilmer McLean is the man in whose house Lee surrendered, uh, General Lee surrendered to General Grant, ending the Civil War in April 1865. And we have a number of family documents that talk about that, but I have been seeking to prove it. So I actually added some census records, the slave birth index, and so on, that show documentation that Lucy and her mother, whose name was Betsy, well, actually, Betsy was a slave of Wilmer McLean and his wife, Virginia. So I am hoping that one day the park, well, there's a very nice museum at the Appomattox National Park. I'm hoping that they will acknowledge that Wilmer McLean had children with one of his slaves <laughs> and that there are still descendants of Wilmer and his slave living and doing fairly well in the world. <laughs> uh, other things that I found uh, in addition to the photographs, by the way, did I say that the photographs are now at Northeastern University? We donated no, them. No, you did Oh, so the 150 photographs that you uh, discovered, are those the photographs that you're talking about? Yeah, and it was actually 250 photographs, professional quality. And what we learned was that the father of Constance Bruce, my cousin Connie, his name was Charles Bruce. He died, I think, in 1976. I never knew him. Our lives, you know, crossed each other, but I didn't know him because he and Aunt Goldie were divorced. They actually had divorced in 1933. Some people think people didn't get divorced back then, but they did. But anyway, we believe that the photographs were taken by Charles Bruce because we've documented that one of his avocations was photographer. And we learned through talking to first one person and then another that Northeastern University was trying to document the black history of the community where the school is now located, and we're mm-hmm. interested in having the photograph. So that's another thing um, that I tell so people. So tell us you know, the name of the, the university again where the photographs were donated. Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts. It's in the south Boston. end, right, right at the edge of what we now know of as Roxbury. Right, right. Well, you are so fortunate to have those those pictures and their comments coming out of the chat about how it must have been a, a great sacrifice to family members to take pictures, but to have this documentation there in black and white, your mother as a small child, your mother with, you said, her parents, uh, this is just, I mean, it's just breathtaking just to look at these, these photographs. Uh, they they each tell a story. And was your mother able to share with you uh, some of her memories based upon some of the pictures that she, uh, she put in the book? 
Absolutely, yes. Although she really doesn't have a lot of pictures of from when she was a little girl. Um, she has more letters and things, and then she does have pictures of her aunts and uncles and so on. And, in fact, that's another point to be made. I think one of the reasons that my mother wanted to write this is because since her mother did die when she was a little girl, she didn't have a real strong connection. Well, she didn't have the connection to her mother and to her mother's relatives. She actually writes in the book about how she felt that her mother's relatives didn't keep in touch with her that that much. You know, she ended up um, being closer to her father's family. But that being said, anybody else who's thinking about writing their family history, even if you feel like you don't know much about it, you still can write about it. You can, you need to write what you know. And once you start wow. writing and start looking for information, and my mother was able to ask some of the older relatives. I know she asked Aunt Goldie some things. She was able to ask Cousin Connie some things. Well, obviously, yes, Aunt Goldie before she died. She died in 1977. Um, I have letters, correspondence that show letters from other people who wrote back to my mother after my mother wrote to them asking about family. So you see, these were some things that were kind of missing in her life that she sought to clarify. So mm-hmm. other people can do something similar. Because, um, you know, there are families who have family reunions every year. I was talk- ran into an old classmate today. She said her family had been having reunions since 1906 every year. Well, my mother's family actually didn't have family reunions. But fortunately, there were e- there was enough family to have a family. Is that a good way to put it? <laughs> to know that you had a family. Yeah. I mean, everybody yeah. has a family yeah. of sorts. And my mother, mm-hmm. um, of course, my mother made sure that we always had Thanksgiving dinner and Christmas dinner. I'm talking about when, we, when I was growing up. Um, these are some things that families take for granted, but some families... Don't even do that. We don't. There's not much togetherness. My mother used to take us visiting to friends and family. My mother and father and I, we would do what they call pop calling. Maybe you remember that when you were going. Right, up. You know, and so, so you're, you know, it's very important that you, you're at least saying, look, there was a sense of family. I mean, although you didn't have family reunions, you all still did a lot as a family. Now, I want to get back to the book. There's a question mm-hmm. coming out of the chat about your father and his work at the Library of Congress. What was the time frame for that? Okay, and that was my grandfather. That would have been in the 1920s. My mother's father worked at the Library of Congress, and I think she actually put the dates in there. Cause my mother talks about how her mother used to dress, I mean, get uh, my mother and my aunt dressed up, and they would go to visit my grandfather on Sunday afternoons when he was at work. And my mother commented about how beautiful she felt the Library of Congress was. Even She she had to have been less than six because she was six when her mother died. And she said, of course, at that time she had no idea that one day she would be in there studying when she was a student at Howard University. But um, So it would have been in the early 20s. And he worked there until he died in 1943. Wow. Well, tell us about your relative's connection to Marcus Garvey. Okay. And what my, you uncovered in the, the artifacts. All right. My paternal research. grandfather, my father's father, was Cyril Critchlow, who was 
Marcus Garvey's Resident Commissioner in Africa. And it's a story that we didn't really know about until 2004. Now, back in 1991, when I first went to Africa, I went to Ghana with an organization called Operation Crossroads Africa. When I came back, one of my aunts, actually it was my father's brother's wife, she said, oh, you're trying to be like your grandfather, going to Africa. Well, I was in college at that time, but I had never heard that my grandfather had traveled to Africa. You know, there was a time period when many black folks, and I guess people, period, just didn't talk much about Africa and Africans. All right. And fast forward, though, to 2004, one of my cousins, one of my Critchlow cousins, Googled our grandfather's name and found that his name was just all over the place. And she wrote to the, well, she read about the, Marcus Garvey Archives at UCLA and wrote to the archivist there. His name is Dr. Robert Hill. And Dr. Hill was so excited to learn that Cyril Critchlow, my grandfather, had descendants living in Washington. He flew here to interview us because Cyril had figured prominently in the Marcus Garvey program. He actually led Garvey's first expedition to Liberia came back and barely came back because he got sick. He had he described it as black water fever, but that's what we now know as malaria. Um, and then as it turned out, Garvey didn't pay him. And my grandfather actually ended up being government witness against Garvey. And I'm just thinking at this point, um, just like today, if people are government witnesses, I think they're sworn to secrecy and they can't discuss it with anybody. Maybe my grandfather was ashamed of having worked with Garvey. And I'm not saying that it's something to be ashamed about. I'm just speculating. Um, but anyway, we have letters, copies of letters and postcards that my grandfather actually wrote to my grandmother in 1921 when he was en route from Liberia back to New York where they lived at the time. And of course, everybody knows Garvey's headquarters was in New York. And then my grandfather was from Trinidad. Similarly, Garvey was Jamaican. So a number of the Garvey followers were West Indian. And after my cousin contacted Dr. Robert Hill, who, by the way, is also Jamaican, um, but or originally from Jamaica, he said in their research when I say there, those at UCLA, it just seemed like Cyril Critchlow had just dropped out of the West Indian community and kind of disappeared. But what happened was some after the after my grandfather testified against Garvey, yes, he said, well, I'm out of New York, and he moved to Washington, got what uh, my neighbor, who's a professor at Georgetown University, calls a GGJ, is good government job, and I'm, when we say good government job, it, well, my grandfather was actually, his title was messenger. A lot of people um, were messengers back then. He was a clerk, but he typed. He had he had good skills, but as we know, not all black people could get the kind of job they really deserved. But we actually have a photograph of him with his all-white coworkers. Um, he worked for the War Department. But my point is, we learned, okay, Cyril Critchlow came back to Washington, got a government job, and obviously never had anything to do with Garvey as far as we can determine. But that's an interesting piece of history because it sheds light on another aspect 
of the Garvey history, you know, many of us tend to revere him, and he was indeed quite an organizer, but here's a person who we can document was not treated well by Garvey. <laughs> um, so that's just another piece of history that happens. Right, to be and really, this, this could end up being a another book, <laughs> uh, <laughs> just about uh, Cyril but mm-hmm. Linda, you know, some of the, the interesting documents that I have observed in your book uh, included insurance uh, policies and uh, wills and just uh, newspaper clippings, just a lot of the things that you probably have, but some people may just throw them away. Exactly. And you you worked with this organizer to put all of these documents back into uh, this memoir. And so what I want to do in the last few minutes that we have with the show is for you to talk about, be very specific about the the information that was not thrown away how this information was organized. And then finally, I want to know, what does your mother think of this book? She is the one that wrote the manuscript, but you took it a step further and you actually published it and added additional information to it. So can you just be very succinct and take us kind of through some of the questions I just asked you? Certainly, I will do my best. And these are the kinds of documents that people need to be on the lookout for to help document their family history. Um, Wills, there's a will of a Mary E. Kinney, who was a staunch member of the 19th Street Baptist Church. She died in 1927. Uh, But in the will, it mentions the names of some of her other relatives, some of whom I still want to find their descendants so I can find out more about that part of the family. Um, I actually was able to find her death notice in the Washington Star archives at the D.C. Public Library, Washingtoniana Division. And it there's one, two, three, four, five, six notices of her death on one page because she had belonged to so many different organizations. And I really didn't know that much about this person, but it's a person for whom my mother was named. And then also among my mother's possessions were stock certificates from the National Benefit Life Insurance Company. But I learned that the stock certificates actually have no value. But it was very interesting reading about the name of the company, the National Benefit Life Insurance Company, that was a black-owned company. I mean, there were people who were working to try to build our community, and they sold stock to try to help the community. And it worked for a while. Unfortunately, the company... Um, did not survive. But then we need to be on the lookout for the news articles, things like uh, I found the free James Glover's, my great-great-grandfather, Freedman's Bank Signature Register. Now, some of these documents were among my mother's papers. Some I found later on Ancestry.com or in libraries. We have to be able to use what we have but also locate other resources that can help pull the pieces together, such as a map of the area where my ancestors lived. I found that in the maps division of the Library of Congress, or a map, um, a picture of an old bridge that was in um, Nelson County where some of my ancestors lived. 
uh, my, one interesting thing that my mother had kept was um, they had them save money. They saved little postage stamps <laughs> to earn money when they were in elementary school, or they had, it was Industrial Savings Bank saving stamp folder for the promotion of thrift. And this is dated 1926. So young people were taught thrift to save, and that is something also that our young people need to learn today. Oh, my mother had a program from the Phyllis Wheatley Literary Society at the Jerusalem Baptist Church in 1937. They had a program. It was called the Third Annual Race Relation Program. You know, some people who were born after World War II and even some of those who were born in the 1970s, 80s, they think they are the first ones to learn about black history and try to discuss race relations. But this is something our ancestors have been doing forever. And, of course, we are still as my mother documented in the book, still reeling from the effects of having been enslaved. But despite having been enslaved, so many of us have achieved, and this achievement is all relative. You know, we have so many levels of achievement. You know, I'm talking about, um, I was talking at a program earlier about my father was a plumber who had attended the old Hampton Institute, but we have had educated African Americans ever since before the Civil War. But so much of this is not known, and that's why it's so important to document these stories. And everybody has a story to tell, and we have to. Everybody has a story to tell. Well, this is just a final question for you. Uh, I, I shouldn't say final because I do have two. Mm-hmm. First of all, did you encounter any surprises? I mean, any surprises at all when you started pulling up uh, your treasures in in both of the homes that you were finding uh, material? Well, I would say the biggest surprise was simply the part about my connection to Appomattox. You know, we read about the Civil War, um, but as one of my friends said, even when she learned that I had... um, a connection to Garvey, for instance. You know, it's like, who knew? You know, the things that you read about in the history books, and then later you learn you got these connections to them. So those kinds of things were surprises, pleasant surprises, interesting surprises. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. Well, what did you, what does your mother think of the book? She is enjoying it. She says... She is going to just continue reading it over and over again. <laughs> it, it provides a resource for her to look back over her life and her history, and I think she enjoys that. So what words of wisdom would you want to leave the listeners with tonight just in case they uh, make a decision they're going to write their historical memoir? The first thing is don't try to do it yourself. Um, Yes, write as much as you can, but if you decide to publish it, there are all these online services, there are graphic artists, there are people who can edit, proofread, and so on. Get someone to help you. Also, definitely read some of the other family stories, or just read anything. This is what we tell the young people, tell older folks too. If you want to write, you need to read to see, you know, what else 
is out there. And then in terms of the genealogy, one of the great things about having the book out, it helps you connect to other people or other relatives. You know, I've had some of my relatives who've seen the book and they are prompted to either do more research or find out more or just tell more about their part of the family, which is wonderful. But every now and then, people come along that you don't necessarily want to know about. You know, I hear stories about um, people find, in fact, it was someone told me, uh, someone has written a book about a, a Jewish woman whose grandparents, uh, one of the grandparents died, and then they found out that someone had actually been married to somebody else. There are these kinds of stories that are often very interesting and informative, but sometimes people don't really want to find out about that. We all have, as they say, skeletons in the closet. So, well, uh, and, you know, I've told you about the SSLs. We're going to see those secret scandals and lies. Right. Um, so, yes, they, they are there, uh, certainly. Uh, but one of the, you know, I guess the, the, the message, you know, as I looked at your book, and I thought about my life and I look at all of the various genealogists out there. It's, it's thought telling your story. And the, the beauty of what's back there then is all about is that your mother documented her story and she's still alive for you to ask questions. And Absolutely. so can you, I mean, what a wonderful legacy. You have a living legacy and you right. have you can turn back to her and ask her uh, a lot of questions. And when I looked at some of your old documents and I thought about, wow, this is something that all of us need to be thinking about right now. Do we throw that letter away or do mm -hmm. we hold on to it? Do right. we, uh, as you said, you hired a, a professional organizer. Do we organize this information uh, do we make the decision that we're going to put it in, in, in some kind of repository for others to read later? Because, indeed, you you do have historical documents, and the pictures are a treasure of in and of themselves. And so I just want to thank you for coming on tonight to share with us back there then. I wish you luck as you continue to share your story with others. And uh, so just thank you so much, Linda, for being a part of uh, Blog Talk Radio tonight. Well, you're quite welcome. And thank you, Bernice. It's been a pleasure. And I hope others are inspired to write their family story. But just remember, you don't have to tell everything. <laughs> That's right. You don't have to tell everything, but at least tell something, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Well, I want everyone to join me next week as author uh, Samuel Michael Lemon, Dr. Samuel Michael Lemon, discuss the stories handed down by his grandmother about his ancestors, how they fought to uh, to be free and go stand up on the rock. I am looking forward to having him come on and share this wonderful novel with us. So good night, everyone. Thank you so much, Linda, 
for joining me. And remember, everyone, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research, of course, at the National Archives and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and at Virginia's Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. Well, I look forward to you joining me next Thursday night. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Linda. Good night, Bernice. Thank you so much. (laughs) 